Welcome back to the Tombed Visions interview series. My guest on this month's Mammoth edition is Benjamin D. Duval, founder of X Easter Island Head, one of Britain's most unique and enduring underground music ensembles. I imagine most people listening will already be familiar with Ben's work in X Easter, but if you're not, I really do encourage you to track down some footage of the group's performances online with the live show they filmed for NTS Radio being really illustrative of what makes them so special. In recent years, Ben has carved out a distinctive practice as a solo performer and has formed the studio-only project Land Trance with current ex-Easter bandmate Andrew B. M. Hunt, both of whom I was incredibly blessed to collaborate with on the album Embassy Nocturnes that was released on the label back in 2021. Clocking over four and a half hours for the sake of digestibility, I've decided to split this episode into two parts. On this first instalment, we discuss Ben's solo practice, which encompasses his recent experiments with Aeolian wind instruments, the history of X Easter Island Head, including a survey of the group's membership and all their recordings to date, as well as their collaborations with Arnold Dreyblatt Laura Cannell, Charles Hayward, the BBC Philharmonic, and three of their expanded large ensembles, each named after the cities they were formed in, which were, in order, Nottingham, Salford, and Denmark. Ben also gives us some really valuable insight into the practicalities of balancing all these musical activities with his regular day-to-day life which has culminated in the recent decision to switch from full-time to part-time work in order to create more opportunities for his creative practice. All right, Ben, thanks for joining me this Friday afternoon. For the majority of the show, we're going to be talking about your work with XC Store Island Head. But you've carved out a pretty distinctive voice in your own solo practice. So I thought it'd be interesting to discuss that first. Um, Because you seem to be booking a lot of shows for solo concerts in your downtime from XE stuff. First off, how have you made your solo work more distinctive from XE stuff? I know that you you don't employ prepared guitar work at all anymore. Yeah. Um, And the music's sort of more generative, isn't it? Sort of slowly amassing sound. Yeah. So the, the solo stuff, I actually started doing solo shows about six years ago maybe longer actually and it took me a while to find my feet with it like the very first ones I was doing I was using prepared guitar and bits of percussion but the Mm. prepared guitar stuff kind of only really works in multiples you've got to have a bunch of them working together (laughs) on its own you're pretty limited um so i quickly decided that there wasn't much i could actually do with the prepared guitar solo i think there is a solo piece waiting to be worked out where i use all sorts of different techniques to make something quite compelling but i'm still not at that point yet um but the earliest stuff yeah so i was sort of trying to be a little bit more like a one-man ex-easter island head sure and then the point at which I felt like I was starting to find its own voice was I started doing things where I would place these transducers or like contact speakers 
on the body of the guitar. So, you know, they're a, a speaker that basically just turns any flat surface into into a, a speaker uh, by resonating it. Wow. Um, it's dead simple. It's just a little pressure pad on the bottom, just, you know, alternating pressure. So the idea is you put it on a tabletop and it uses the sort of surface of the table to further amplify the sound. Anyway, so I was using them on the bodies of guitars and I was just using radio static. So you just give it, you know, 10% on the volume knob on the radio and you get a very faint kind of high overtony thing because the mm. speakers vibrating the body of the guitar which then vibrates the strings which then produces overtones and the drone but the thing is if you want more drone you've got to have more static you've got to send more radio signal through so it was kind of like a sort of delicate uh trying to find the sweet spot between all this sort of white noise and then the kind of guitar droning underneath um, and that felt quite promising for a while. But the thing that um, was I wasn't enjoying about that was it was just me sat there just tuning a radio or occasionally <laughs> adjusting the tone knob on a guitar. You know, there, there wasn't there wasn't much to look at. Yeah. And the actual process I was using, it, it it's not as dramatic as hitting the body of the guitar with a percussion mallet. It's all kind of invisible. Mm. So... <clears throat> I wanted to do something that was a little bit more active um, and and allowed me to kind of express myself maybe a little more melodically and things like that. And then bit by bit, I found my way to the solo show I'm doing now, which the, the, the big thing underlying that is the studies I've been doing, um, the sort of studies and explorations of aeolian music so that's wind powered music i'll explain more <laughs> ben's just taking a sip of wine for those that well it see. is friday afternoon after exactly. all day. Yeah. um yeah so the aeolian music um it's a, a huge sort of topic in itself but and it's had a history dating back thousands of years um so the simplest example of an Aeolian instrument would be a wind chime, which mm. have been around for potentially 10,000 years. Um, and the ones I'm, I've been investigating are flutes and harps. Um, now an Aeolian flute kind of works in the same way as when you blow across the top of a bottle. You sure. know, your the air is being sort of excited within a vessel, mm -hmm. and um, you know it produces resonances depending on the size of the vessel and the material. Um, so I use like empty bottles and cans mainly, and a little bit of PVC pipe. Really simple. You just cut a, a slit in the side, and then when the wind blows across it, it produces these different sorts of harmonics within the vessel i suppose um and then the other instrument is uh wind harp and you can make them using fishing line as a string and the idea with that is the the wind blows across the string makes it vibrate 
um, and that produces harmonics and overtones relating to the length and the thickness of the of the string um, and you have some sort of resonator attached to that I've done done them with um, like tomato cans um, <laughs> mixing bowls um, you know so the the solo set is is using the sounds of these instruments the aeolian harps and flutes but also i describe my process with with words with with speaking mm. as i'm making the music um so i'll i'll for example describe a walk from my house to the river and you know the things along the way that have caught my eye or ear and then i'll describe at the river how i set up these aeolian instruments and then i'll start playing the sounds off the sampler so the 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 instrumentation i use for the set is sampler voice um bode's japanese banjo and sometimes called a shahi baja that's the indian version or the taisho koto this is an instrument i've been using which is like a keyed banjo it's like mm. a cross between a typewriter and zither um <laughs> but i i use that uh, bode um and trombone so sampler trombone bode banjo and voice um which has been a really interesting combination to to work with actually uh it's the first time i'm using words in anything i've done let alone like my own my own voice wow so yeah. so so it that it's spoken word you're you're doing spoken word yeah yeah it's almost like a narrative you're like yeah <laughs> like a, almost like a travel log yeah basically of the creation of the sounds yeah but i try wow. and keep, i try and keep it quite um grounded mm. and not get too you know there's this thing um in a lot of nature writing I've seen referred to as the um, uh, it's something like the 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 enraptured lone male, you know, <laughs> which is like there's a lot of this kind of landscape writing or um, travel writing or anything that involves someone on, on a kind of journey in a landscape. You know, there's a whole sort of genre of kind of blokes sort of walking around feeling powerful feelings you know and, and getting quite visionary and whatever and I, like I think there's a space for that but it feels more realistic to me to keep it quite matter of fact yeah. in what I'm describing you know but it's also very it's full of like local color mm -hmm. you know um there's things like um a, a list of top 10 black metal bands someone's written on a gatepost that I pass <laughs> every time I go on this walk so I make a note of that you know on a like more sort of somber note there's like a kind of homemade shrine someone's made for a relative who's who's clearly passed away mm -hmm. by the river you know so I talk about that as well but I try and keep it very yeah very grounded i suppose and and explanatory but it, it's sort of it, it seems to be working for people wow how many times have you performed this because i know you know like the last few years um obviously you weren't 
you, you know, you ditched doing anything with prepared guitar and um, the in music, my solo stuff. in your solo stuff. Yeah. yeah. And it was um, a lot more based around uh, samples that you've created yourself, um, <laughs> found sounds, um, which you've tuned with the, it's the Volker sampler that you use, isn't it? The Korg Volker. I started out using that, but actually the, the main, it's, it's, it's possibly my main instrument out of everything I'm playing at the minute. It's the Electron yeah. Digitact, which is, yeah. it's, it's meant to be a, it's, its official title is a eight voice sampling drum computer. So it's got a really <laughs> strong emphasis on being like a rhythm machine. But yeah. the, the way I use it is kind of more or less as like a, a tape loop machine. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't I, ne- I don't make any beats. There's no beats in my solo music. Um, the there is rhythm, but it's not percussion. Um, so I, I yeah I don't use the sequencer on it at all. And, and for me, the the main appeal with it is, you know, it's got a knob on it that you just tune the sample with, and mm-hmm. it's really responsive. And it's like the pitch wheel on an old cassette four track albeit mm-hmm. with a, a much bigger range so you know you can you, you go like that dialing the sound down you know Do a skrillex but, drop yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but you know you can really accurately tune the sound and so it means that if you layer up say the sound of a single aeolian flute singing in the wind you can copy and paste that a bunch of times and then tune each one to, you know, a different note in the scale or the chord or whatever. And, you know, I just do that by ear. It's it's all about just playing with the tuning knob until I can hear a lovely harmony happening, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I get I'm getting so much. Um, pleasure and so many ideas from playing with that machine because the 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 thing it also allows is because of the way the samples are tuned it basically makes them longer or shorter to -hmm. make them lower or higher in pitch so what this means is that when you layer them up kind of looping against each other the loops are non-synchronous so the loops are never kind of becoming in sync with each other because they're different length loops so it means that you've got this constantly kind of in tune but constantly shifting surface you know it's these loops just kind of interacting with each other and just constantly evolving it's basically the secret to how wolfgang voigt does the the gas stuff you know that's Ah, just really that's just loads of I mean, there's more to it than that. And, you know, he's absolutely amazing. So this isn't meant as a slight, but I realized as as soon as I started playing with this, it's like, okay, that's that's how that works then. That's some of the Uh, source that he's using. Yeah, you know, it's just samples of different lengths just spooling off against each other. Um, And and the, the thing is with using that approach is that that is quite, similar to way these wind instruments work in the field you yeah know, the, the way the the way the wind will move across a bunch of flutes i've set up like mm-hmm. for example I, I set up 61 flutes on this fence because there were 61 <laughs> posts on the fence so i wow. decided i'd put 61 flutes on it you know and there was about mm, four different sizes of bottle 
forming this kind of organ of wind flutes but the way the wind will move through it is it's just very different to how a human player would approach music and it kind of it's almost like waves on the shore sometimes and the way when you're listening to waves it's not always just this steady back and forth suddenly there'll be like a big booming crescendo Mm -hmm. that just comes out of nowhere and the the dynamics of the wind hitting these things is very different to how you would approach musical dynamics but in the way that they're all all these wind flutes kind of interact with each other in a very unfixed way the way these samples play against each other feels a bit like that to me so it adds a kind of another layer of of meaning to it i suppose with the aeolian flutes um do you, have you got like a notebook full of certain measurements where you can cut like a, an aluminium can or use a certain bottle of a certain length that would produce a certain tone? Because I, I don't know whether you know about this, but um, there's a fucking John Cage uh, audio book on Audible. That's the only reason I'm, <laughs> I'm listening to it at the moment. But he had gotten to he he had a, like a notebook full of precise measurements of where you put certain bolts and certain yeah, screws the, on the piano strings that's but right, of course yeah. that but of course that only works for a certain piano yeah and then you you know you trend you, you say if it was a bugensdorf and you to use those same measurements on a steinway they're not going to mm. generate in the same sound so i guess that might be the case with your practice with the aeolian winds yeah, well, you know, when I first started out trying to do the wind flutes, I was trying to work with PVC pipes and I was, you know, l- looking at like really quite precise measurements of lengths of the pipes. Um, and basically the material is just so difficult to work with, mm. or at least with the tools I, I, I had, still have. Like... Um, it was becoming really difficult so one day I just ended up just having to go on a on a lager can that was lying on the floor <laughs> I was just like you know what that's gonna cut really easily mm-hmm. like you know because trying to cut through PVC is a nightmare especially because you need to make this kind of angled edge with with a thicker material to allow this kind of flute tone to happen and what I found with with the cans and with the plastic bottles is you can cut them so easily and the material's so thin that this angle doesn't seem to matter so much. And it means they resonate really easily in like really soft wind. You can still get a, a sound out of them. So the thing is, then I'm limited to what size they are. So although I would love to... And at some point I will do this, you know, make some really precise, uh, like a rank of really precise Aeolian flutes in a whole scale, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, right now I'm I'm limited to, well, do I want this sound to be lower in pitch or higher in pitch than the, the one next to it, you know. And then I'm just using these different measures of... Uh, of beverage but the thing the interesting <laughs> thing is you know obviously uh drinks cans come in these kind of um halves and quarters of each other 
you know, like 25 cent litres, 50 cent litres, 100 cent litres and so on. Um, you know, so they're kind of actually like pure ratios. Like that's getting in its own very crude way, getting into like just intonation. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, they're re- these really pure ratios. This object is two thirds bigger than the one before it and things like that. So that means you just get some really strange combinations, but also the way the wind acts on the, the thing, you know, there's a couple of different tones per vessel depending on how wide the slit you've cut in the front is. That's something you have to be quite precise about. Mm. Um, but I, I kind of just do it by eye. Really? Yeah. Like you can measure it out, but it's, it's kind of quicker to, to just go for it. Um, the kind of rule of thumb is that the, the bigger, the, the slit you carve in the side of the can, the more wind you need, but it will give right. you a steady, steadier tone. If it's a small slit, then the sound kind of overblows, like if you overblow on a flute or a recorder. So that means you get some mad harmonic intervals that, you know, in terms of degrees of the scale. So it, it means that you you might start out aiming for quite a tonal, tuneful array of vessels. But because of this overblowing and stuff, you end up with a quite a cacophonous weird harmony sometimes but it's it's uh it's really satisfying because it's always changing wow wow so how many how many shows have you done so far with in in this with this new aeolian wind project um i think i've done about six gigs Mm. uh, six or seven gigs with it um and um with the spoken word as well yeah yeah and the the first one was uh was very notable because um there was uh a woman uh who'd come in very drunk uh in, <laughs> into the gig uh just as i started and it was like a good solid two and a half minutes of talking and she was talking and getting louder and louder and louder <laughs> and uh someone said to her when are you gonna stop talking and she said, when he plays some fucking music. <laughs> so that was that was a good start. Um Baptism of Fire. Yeah, yeah. But it's 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 been really nicely received. Someone said to me, you know, the idea of a walk along a river is a near enough universal concept. And as mm-hmm. that's what most of the piece is, me describing walking along a river. They said that even though they don't know the place I'm describing, it, it can, it was, it was giving them a nostalgic feeling. Um, wow. Yeah, it's had some quite, um, quite emotional responses from from people. It seems to have touched people in a way that I wasn't expecting. But it's it's also like there's a little bit of humour in there as well. Mm-hmm. I kind I kind of um, I wanted to do something that was a little bit had just a little bit more of my personality in because yeah ex easter's very serious and you know we're we're not like that as people when we're off stage you know we take the music very seriously but we're we're not that and um i kind of just wanted a little bit of that honesty or something in the solo thing i thought that might be an interesting thing to try Mm. um and I'm and, and using the voice as well 
I just thought like, well, that's a, you know, that, 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 that's an instrument you can just carry. You don't need to carry that one. <laughs> you know, it's not another <laughs> it's piece not of gear. It's already, yeah. already with you, you know, and, and it also opens up the, um, the possibility of using words, you know, yeah. and text. And, and that's something I thought, well, that, that could be good to do. It's really interesting because, you know, there's so much in the inflection of the voice and the, the mm. tempo of your delivery. And, and I think when you're doing spoken word stuff, you know, without realizing it, there are, there are tropes you can easily fall into like ways of phrasing a sentence or something almost to make it more musical and less conversational or, mm. or going for a quite a dead emotion uh, could be the easier option than trying to, make it a little bit more really trying to pay attention to the rhythms of your own speech and not mm. make it too texty i suppose yeah like, re- not too recitery you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also you're using trombone and um yeah in this project how did you come across beginning to use the trombone i'm guessing was Stuart dempster a bit of an influence from deep listening band well yeah but he, that was after I'd started playing. I had heard him, but he wasn't. He didn't inspire me to to pick it up. Actually, what inspired me to pick it up was just that my uh, bandmate and long-term collaborator John Herring mm. had had bought bought it, bought a plastic <laughs> trombone with the intention of learning it, and quickly realised it wasn't wasn't really to his tastes like as an instrument and uh, he just wasn't drawn to it so that was always just lying around in in john's room and um i'd frequently pick it up and blow down it obnoxiously and (laughs) john bless him uh you know a couple of times said like you know you're getting all right sound out of that um which I dread to think what it must have sounded like listening back to it, but <laughs> that sometimes that's enough, you know, someone who's um, who you really respect and admire and trust their judgments. And they sort of say, why don't you give that a go? You think, yeah, yeah go on then, man. Yeah. You've convinced me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I just started having a go. I wasn't getting very far with it. And then I got, um, Simon Stafford, who's in Bonnikens of Doom um, and works here in Liverpool, um, I knew he played trombone, so I got him to give me a couple of pointers, basically. We just had a couple of evenings playing together and ended up doing some quite good jamming, actually. Um, But he sort of showed me the basics, and then I I had, like, two or three lessons off a lady called Jen before she moved elsewhere. So Mm. I... And then I've just been following my intuition and watching videos on youtube uh so the trombone kind of came into it just very it was a very simple journey for for the trombone to suddenly enter my life unexpectedly um but yeah i i love it as an instrument i mean i'm so basic on it i'm really i've got a lot long way to go as you might have gathered when you heard me playing it. Um, no, not at all, not at all. But the about it is how physical it is. 
mm-hmm. the, the sound it makes and the act of playing it is is very physical um mm-hmm. in a way that other instruments I've played aren't obviously the guitar and percussion are physical you know can be very physical instruments but they don't involve like your lungs in quite the same way or like you know <laughs> the, you know, I don't know. It's just a bit more of a full body experience, the trombone. But definitely, yeah. I I love. I I think the thing that's most drawn me to it is the it's the glissando, it's the slide. So mm-hmm. much of Exista's music and the way I play guitar when we're using the Allen key technique, where we're rubbing an Allen key on the strings, almost like a a slide on a slide guitar, crossed with a bow. And you can get these really controlled, really nice kind of slides and glissandos on it. And with the trombone, it's the same thing. So I think I've had sliding tones have been such a part of my like musical language mm. up to this point that that makes the trombone quite a, a good fit mm. for, for- in terms of like a timbre as well, it, it sounds like it would be like really sympathetic to the rest of the the sound sources that you're using in your solo practice. And um, it's certainly been a, a, like a little bit of a secret weapon in uh, the stuff that we've been working on together in a, in a new sort of quartet that we're working with, but which we'll speak about later. But um, yeah, the, the thing is, it, yeah, obviously, you know, I'm working with the wind. And it's an instrument that involves air mm. going through it. That's how it's making it sound. So there's a sort of sympathy there. Then you've also got the sliding tones, which you'll find in the wind harps and things like that. But then also it's got this, um, you know, the way I play it is I, I, I have like a pickup. It's both a combined mute and a pickup. It's meant for you to be able to practice it in your hotel room or something or not piss the neighbors <laughs> off you know um so it, it, the idea is you plug this in the front of the trombone it makes it inaudible to those around you and then you plug some headphones in so you can hear it um but what that allows me to do is to hook it up to my guitar pedals um and loop it without worrying about using a a, a normal microphone because if you're using a normal microphone you've got you know the there's all the other sounds around um there's a more chance of it feeding back and things like that so i use this pickup thing to um allow me to loop it and affect it very cleanly um but what that means is that you know you can get this really nice sort of mournful um foghorn kind of thing if you put a bit of distortion or reverb or shift it down with an octave pedal you can get this kind of foghorny thing and because i'm mainly talking about being by a river and at one point um i'm talking about foghorns as well so you know it creates another kind of bit of connective tissue you know to the whole idea it's your own foley effect (laughs) indeed yeah (laughs) I mean, this sounds all amazing, man. And um, you've really articulated just the, I mean, it's fascinating. It sounds fascinating. I'm really looking forward to seeing it live. Um, Before we get on to the meat of the show, um, I mean, one of the reasons I thought it would be great to start interviewing people is um, 
just to discuss the sort of daily practicalities of what it's like being a musician. So yeah. f- for you, um, is there, do you have a, like a set routine or is there, a, you know, a set portion of the day that you set aside to, to create music? Because you've got so many varying different projects going on and you're always busy. How does that look for you weekly? Well, I'm always aiming for a a routine. Mm. And I think I do have one. It just differs quite a lot day to day. I think the, the constant is that I try and make time every day, during the week at least, mm. and most weekends as well. I'll try and make time to do something musical. Like... And that can be pretty broad at the minute because, you know, my practice is encompassing Ex Easter Island Head, um, my solo show, the field work element that goes with the solo show, which is actually recording the instruments. And then there's the sort of research and design of the instruments as well. So, you know, in addition to using the cans and bottles and wind harps and doing stuff with kind of like weather vanes and elastic and and I'm working on quite a few things and this at the minute I'm trying to make something that's a windmill that makes sound basically that's what I'm aiming for mm. so you know in addition to the bands the solo stuff and you know going out in the field there's also this kind of workshop component at the moment mm-hmm. so any of those things are are valid for me to look at at any time and then you know within each of those things there'll be things like okay in the solo stuff well there's there's trombone practice there's play around on the sampler there's you know there's a couple of different things in there um so i just try and do one of those things every day Mm -hmm. you know and sometimes you know it might be a pathetic 10 minutes and other times, you know, it's more like four or five hours. Um, right, right. Okay. You know, it it really depends. And there's also just days when nothing happens, despite best intentions. <laughs> you know, it just it just doesn't work out one way or another. But yeah, the main approach is is trying to tackle one of those things every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of listening. I do a lot of listening to sessions I've recorded with people or practices or little sketches of I've been trying to work out. I'll also do quite a bit of sketching um, for this instrument design. Um, and um, the the main thing that, that keeps me to any sort of routine is other people. Yeah, yeah. Like that, I found that myself. <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's how I have to work. Otherwise, I just... I would forever be in the kind of curiously engaged kind of pottering stage, <laughs> you know, like um, I really need the involvement of other people, both as like, well, they can, they can function in all sorts of ways. You know, it's, it's more fun for me, like dialoguing with other people musically, you know, um, it's also just, it's the sort of editorializing that other people can offer. You know, mm. like either spoken where they'll tell you that's good, that's bad, or, you know, give you criticism you've asked for, but also like unspoken, you know, say you've been working on a demo and you, you've worked on it for ages and then you play it to your collaborators 
and without them saying anything, without them moving or whatever, you can just tell by the atmosphere in the room within 10 seconds whether your idea is being successful or not. You sure. know, yeah. not necessarily do they like it or do they not like it, but you can you can just tell like, oh, that needs more work. Like yeah. when once you once you're sat there with other people, all becomes clear, you know, mm, in mm. a way that hours of time on your own never <laughs> I never reach that final point. So, you know, X used to practice fairly regularly and then, you know, I've had different recording sessions um with yourself, with Peter Taylor, with with other people as well. Mm. And you know, so being kind of bound by other people and knowing that they've adjusted their routine and their life to make that time makes me take that time seriously, you sure. know, yeah. um, and that makes you prepare and reflect when you work with other people. So that's another, you know, incentive to to practice the trombone or stock up the sampler with new sounds or even just do a bit of like admin on your equipment you know making sure it everything's where it needs to be and is working properly when you need it you know mm. so all down to other people sparing me on basically <laughs> that's that's how i have any sort of routine yeah yeah i'd say it's a lot similar for myself but i mean how is that different when you, you've got such a pronounced solo project as well. I guess because you're working with Aeolian Wind, which requires, you know, it's it's like a, it's a bigger idea rather than just sort of sitting on your own and making music. There's yeah, that seems to be what it would be, right? Yeah, well, with that, you know, there is a because it's so bound to place as well. Mm. You know, it's like. I've got the I've got the overarching theme, which is this wind powered thing. I'm not necessarily explaining why I'm doing it because I'm not quite sure I know why, but you know, um, <laughs> but I'm explaining how I'm doing it and throwing some other things in there as well. So that gives me like quite a good framework to work with. And then the different locations that the action is taking place in, I know that there's certain things happening in each of those locations in terms of the sounds or the words I'm using so that's been useful you know it's the first time I've had like a frame like mm. this rather than like a blank slate and it's like okay I will make some solo music yeah. you know I've I've got a, a narrative to work with mm -hmm. there's a higher concept that you're sort of feeding rather than just someone's invited me to play a show X Easter yeah. I can't do it I'll do yeah. a solo set <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah which is exactly. usually that's the only time i've ever played solo i've yeah, just been yeah. like oh no one's around i'll just do it on my own <laughs> yeah the old smash and grab yeah yeah um this is something that i think is it, it, you know it's it's unique to the one of the, the people that's this is quite unique that has happened to um you you took the decision because you were you were working full-time weren't you yeah and you took the decision what in the last three years to to switch to part-time work so you could have more time to focus on music could you discuss a bit sort of some of the pitfalls and some of the positives of, of that because it's it's a really really brave thing especially in our currently in our well, current climate yeah. right yeah yeah i mean my timing was uh was impeccable because i <laughs> kind of made that change 
in uh, November 2019. So like four months later, of course, <laughs> um, all sorts happened and music basically stopped being a thing in the mm. public sphere for about yeah. two years at least, you know. Um, but yeah, it just, it's so far been working out okay. I'm very fortunate in that I've got quite a reasonably priced living situation because I'm in a big shared house. So, yeah. you know, you sacrifice certain kind of uh, privacies and luxuries or whatever for for cheaper rent i mean it's a very nice shared house um but the 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 main the main thing we're going part-time is you, you're trading money for time you yeah know, that's that's the decision you're making and you can only do it if you the idea was that i would make half my income from music stuff and half from working part-time mm-hmm. and i did manage to make that happen last year through mm-hmm. a combination of some big kind of commissioned projects and getting some uh, arts council funding as well that allow and a few nice gigs that allowed me for the first time to be like okay i've actually managed to balance the two halves here um but that's that's whether that's going to be the case this year i don't know and i think that will probably be the pattern i think that there'll be some years when it'll be really bad and some when it'll be good and hopefully mm. I can still stay like this and remain part time you know mm. Mm. Um, but yeah so you, like I say you're, you're trading money for, for time and that has obvious advantages but it's also just such a delicate balance because you know I think idleness can grow to fill the available time um, when you've got an excess of time. Whereas when you're really limited with time, you know, your creativity, uh, hopefully, and sometimes will grow to fill what's available. So, you know, in the past where I was working nine, 10 hour days for a, a couple of years working as a receptionist, you know, we still managed to get a lot of ex Easter stuff done. Um, and it's like, am I getting more things? Sometimes I don't know. Um, mm. But on the whole, it does feel like it's been a really, it's been the right choice. Um, because I, I think it got off to a bit of a delayed start, obviously, with the pandemic. And looking back on the last two years, I've had, yeah, so many different threads and things I've been working on that I just wouldn't have been able to fit in or have the energy for if I was still working full time in a day job. Because um, energy is the other thing, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. it's it's like I, I I've been picking up a lot of overtime recently, so I've been working like more or less full time uh, this week and. You know, I sat down to do some music last night and everything was set up, good to go. And it just, the energy just wasn't there. And, you know, then then you feel like an idiot because you're like, come on, man, kick yourself up the arse. But sometimes the body and mind just can't go there, can it? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, but for me, it's, it's been the right decision. And I also think that if I was fully trying to make a living off music, well, 
firstly, at this moment in my career, I couldn't. I don't think there's enough people that need what I'm doing mm-hmm. regularly enough for me to, to live off it. Um, it's also, I actually think I need that contrast of of having to go to work and having to answer to to someone and keep set hours that I need that routine taken care of so that then I can focus on building the creative routine. I feel like I'd be all over the place if I was just fully freelance. And also I'd just be scrabbling around trying to trying to find stuff to, to pay the rent. And that wouldn't be how I'd want to be engaging with my music making. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think a lot, we've had. We, I mean, we we both we both work in education uh, institutions, and with, there's been a lot of sort of similarities between uh, our our you know our working lives and our yeah. Um, um, so, I you know I'm completely the same. Obviously, I I still work full time, and um, like you just said, I, I totally agree with it. For for me personally, I I like. Um, having a lot of time where I am working um because during working hours you still do you can still think about the music you can still oh, think man. about projects and, t- and I do take some... care of all your admin as well yeah 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 I mean I do that on my lunch break you know and 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 often sometimes when you're when you're at work you get um you're out of the creative you're sort of a distanced from the creative process where you can be a bit more subjective about the ideas that you're working on and uh, see them on the sort of colder light of day um but have you sort of since switching to part-time um have you found it easier to generate (laughs) leads on um on 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 getting getting bigger uh better shows uh more shows or you know getting more work commissioned has that is that that time away from full-time work allowed that to prosper i i think it's definitely helped because Mm. knowing that you have more time available means that you put yourself forward for more things and you can also afford to pursue more you know like say meeting with someone who you might do something with you know or you might you might not you know Mm. you've got the time to to do that you know um we just did a piece um Ben Fair and I from X Easter, um, uh, uh, we were commissioned by a dancer to write some new music for and, you know, being able to meet with her and talk about that project and take the time to really work through some ideas and stuff, you know, alongside doing various other things, you know, I was thinking, oh, probably wouldn't have had time to do this if it was full time. So, mm. yeah, I, I, I think... Yeah, in terms of the shows and booking bigger shows and more shows, I think it's a case of like, well, I'm doing more solo stuff because I've had more time to to make it better, make it good, think about what I'm doing. Mm. And then because I've got something that I think is really good, then I'm pushing it a bit more. So it it all kind of plays into each other, you know. You've got more time to hustle. Yeah, yeah, there is that, yeah. (laughs) Do you find find it a hustle? No, I would... I don't I don't look at it in those ways. I mean, I think, you know, if I look at like all the people we work with in terms of doing shows and the people that give us opportunities and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, 
it's not like all of them are my like best best mates but my relationship with almost everyone we work with is is warm and conversational you yeah. know yeah. so it never it doesn't really feel like a, a hustle to yeah obviously there are moments where you're like say trying to shop a record round or trying mm. to get a show in in a city or country that you've never played in before you know and but again a lot of those connections come through oh it's a mate of a mate you know mm -hmm. you get mm -hmm. put in touch so i think it's always quite familial and um warm you know and and less um less cynical than a hustle <laughs> is how is how i view it well you're naturally a gregarious person so obviously the main focus of your musical practice for a considerable amount of years has been ex Easter Island Head. Um, so we're going to do a bit of a survey of that project. So when did the group start? 2009? Yeah, 2009. I kind of look at the official start of it to be around July 2009, because basically mm -hmm. that's when... I first did the very simple thing of just putting the guitar flat on the keyboard stand and I was just looking at it. And in fact, to be honest, I think I'd, I think in the practice room we were sharing with, with my existing band at that time, um, I think someone had, had actually just left a, while they were clearing up they'd picked up a guitar off the floor and just rested it on the keyboard stand, you know, and something about that image, like, stuck with me. Like, oh, wow. I just thought, oh, that's quite interesting. And then, yeah, I was at home and I just, yeah, got keyboard stand, stuck the guitar on it, and I was just kind of looking at it, just thinking, like, I like, I like how that looks. Um, I wonder what you can do with it. And then I was, it took me a couple of hours, I was just playing around and thinking like what's the purpose of this and then i started like hitting the the body of the guitar with a percussion mallet which mm. was making the strings vibrate very quietly but within that vibration you could very faintly hear these overtones over the fundamental notes and you know my ears were had been open to that through listening to i'd been introduced to the work of reese chatham mm -hmm. the american composer and particularly his piece guitar trio um which just uses the phenomena of the open strings of the guitar but you're you're picking them rather than picking them where you normally would over the pickup you actually pick at different points along the strings length so it might be a the fifth fret or the seventh fret or the twelfth fret. And by picking at the, those nodes on the string, you generate these overtones. And that's what Reese Chatham's music is, is, is kind of de dealing in, is these mm -hmm. overtones. So on one level, you've just got this very, it's it's the same E string, just going clang, 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 you know, just <laughs> being strummed over and over again. but your your ear starts to adjust and is able to hear these kind of changing high harmonics over it. And obviously the more strings are in play, the more harmonics are kind of swimming about. And so that was a mode of listening I'd kind of been introduced to, was listening for this 
overtone thing. And then you start to realise that you've been hearing that in other things over the years, you know, particularly like rich guitar sounds on a, on different records or something. You suddenly go, oh, that's really, actually, that's really overtony and really harmonic sounding. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why I liked that, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, um yeah, so that that was one thing was was this basically this this tape horizontal guitar and what mm-hmm. you could do with it. And the first thing was this malleting thing. And the other thing behind the forming of the group was that um, you know I'd been friends for some years with George Maund, um, and we'd our previous bands had played on bills together, and we were sharing rehearsal rooms. We were living together, had lots of mutual friends um lots of shared listening and he also had a really voracious appetite for interesting music and he's the one that introduced me to reese chatham and mm-hmm. stuff and we we just talked about wanting to do some stuff together at some point and so it was like okay showed showed him this horizontal guitar thing and he was like very very into it and so that was really soon after I'd first discovered the the technique. So the kind of actual language of the music sort of started to develop once once George came on board. And then the first gig was November 2009. We supported a band called Portico Quartet, um, who were like, the, do you know these? They're like a jazz yeah. group. Uh, yeah. And I actually they'd really caught my ear because of the use of the hang drum, which now the hang drums become like probably a bit overused and a bit, it doesn't really excite me anymore. Mm -hmm. But when I first heard the music, the fact that it had this obvious like minimalist Mm -hmm. influence and it was being done on this really ethereal, nice sounding percussive instrument. I was really into that sound and uh, thankfully didn't toy with the idea of buying one because they cost loads of money and they're a bit naff now. But um, that idea of a really sonorous percussive sound, you know, that was like, okay, well, maybe I can use the guitar to to do that. And you're getting a rhythmic thing and a drone thing. I, I was thinking about this, actually, um, because I knew we were having this chat. I was thinking about the sort of climate in the local scene and the national DIY scene at the time and and how Exista came out of that. And I, I got to thinking about how there was a lot, if you think about the years kind of 2006 up until about 2010, there was a lot of what um, the guitarist Riley Walker dubbed uh, floor tom core, which was... <laughs> There was a lot of, lot of bands um, where even if they were just a straight up rock band, there'd at least be a bit in the set where another floor tom got dragged out on the stage <laughs> and, and be a kind of floor tom off and, the, you know, and maybe a bit of gang vocal. And I think like, um, you know, something like Drums Not Dead by Liars is probably like the most sophisticated kind of expression. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of that but so there was a lot of this there was a lot of this per- simple percussive thing 
going on in a lot of bands I was going to see. And some of them were making more of it than others. Like I remember seeing um, Fuck Buttons, you know, and they they had they had a big floor tom bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and then and then also in, in Liverpool, there's a a really uh, fascinating artist called Sean Wars who's done stuff for years. His projects, um, Spirit Animals. Uh, he's doing one called Hell on Hearth at the minute. He had the band Bodies on Everest uh, up until fairly recently. But he was doing a project called Monobrow, which was kind of sort of inspired, I would guess, by like Boa Drum by the Boredoms, where it was like basically getting together loads of drummers. Uh, he'd be doing kind of noise table and there'd just be a kind of massed drum thing going on. So there was this kind of percussive element at that time. And then also big influence in Liverpool and, you know, for me personally and for loads of other people as well was the band APAT, who are still mm. going, still fantastic. And in fact, we've shared a lot of members over the years. I was going to say, yeah, is, it a a is it a requirement um, to join <laughs> XC Star that you have to have played with APAT for a certain amount of years? It's, it certainly seems that way. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, they had some really fascinating things and the, the things that were most inspiring from APAT were firstly they kind of exploded the notion of a band you know so they were always swapping instruments and the instrumentation yeah. in itself was quite varied and it was the fact that basically nearly all of them could play all the instruments so they were always swapping round so the sort of hierarchy or whatever of, of traditional roles in the band was broken but then also they'd have pieces where you know the keyboards and the bass and the drums weren't getting used at all for most of the song and they're just doing stuff on claves and it's a piece called um the blood i'm thinking of in particular which has this kind of clave interlocking percussive thing that everyone's playing and i remember that being really striking um you know, when I saw that and yeah, so there was this, there was a big percussive thing going on locally. That was, that felt like a bit of an influence. Um, and also just like drone, you know, just really starting to get into droney things around then, you know, whether it was like Tangerine Dream or like even like Stereo Lab. I remember at that time, you know, they've got that kind of motoric, sort of a bit of a branker thing going on in there and then you know reese chatham and glenn branker and earth and mm. lots of other things and there was also like i was i'd been really fascinated by the idea of the tambora and indian music when i was at university they there was a like a kind of master class or lecture guest lecture i suppose by a couple of indian musicians one was a tablet player, one was a violin player. Um, but, you know, they had the little tambour, electronic tambour, a drone box with them. And I obviously knew that this was the component, I'd read about this being a component of Indian music, but to sit in this classroom and just see this improvisation underpinned by this drone, this really rich harmonic drone, uh, that was the sort of first time I'd ever seen that. 
live and um i really i'd really been wanting to incorporate some kind of drone into whatever music i was going to do so the the tabletop guitar encompassed a lot of different strands of thinking in a very simple quite like primitive on one level idea you know wow I mean, in terms of membership, you've 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 had quite a few um, different members um, over the years. George was obviously an important um, early member. Um, yeah. Did and then Andrew's brother Nick. Did he? I've seen f- uh, photos. He was playing trumpet at some point as well. Yeah. So the 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 group for about the first six months, it was just me and George as a duo, yeah. and. You know, we were just using three guitars between the two of us, three in total. Mm-hmm. And we'd arranged them in the center and we had basically, it's about a 15 minute long piece. I think the record ended up even shorter than that. It's just a 15 minute long piece. And um, it was like three movements kind of thing. And I came up with the the most basic rhythmic elements and kind of laid out the concept and the kind of the detail and the more interesting rhythmic stuff um all came from george he had a much better sense of of rhythm and and improvising within rhythm as well whereas Mm. my my skill lies in doing something very simple but repeating it pretty accurately every time (laughs) like so i'm i'm a bit more monotonous or at least i was i was then you know um yeah so for for the first six months it was a duo of of me and george and then nick hunt joined on guitar percussion and trumpet um just by virtue of the fact that he played trumpet we thought Mm. oh let's try that in there um and then we also had jake chabot playing percussion and prepared guitar as well um so that was the kind of mallet guitars to lionel which lasted i think up until about early 2012 and then uh everyone bar george moved to london um so then john herring joined in 2012 and we were a trio and that perhaps actually john might have joined even earlier but uh anyway we were a trio and, and we recorded the matic Tars three record um and then yeah 2013 um george left and uh ben fair came in and then we've been working in that way up until about 2019 when andrew hunt joined and so it's been the four of us ben fair andrew hunt john herring and myself um yeah for like the last four years now so the 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 sort of the most consistent lineup was was the the trio of you ben fair and john herring yeah so far that that was um yeah the bulk of the band's existence has been with with that lineup when we did the the main thing we were doing was the the um 22 strings record and we we played that piece a lot but mm-hmm. then during the time the three of us have been together we before andy joined we've done a lot of different things in that time as well like large ensemble projects dance piece 
um, you know, different commissions working with classical musicians. Like we we've managed to cover a lot of ground during yeah. that time. So, so we've only it, got like one record, you know, as the trio. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say because you know, although you were that was the most consistent lineup in terms of years, um, you'd 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 kept the project so open and um, there's so many different collaborations, which, which we're going to go through actually um, yeah. in a little bit. So the current incarnation of X Easter Island, again, is you, John Herring, Ben Fair and Andrew, um, Andrew PM Hunt. Yeah. Um, so how's, how's the equipment shifted over those years? You're still primarily using the, the, the tuned guitars, aren't you? Yeah, they've been in every incarnation. We haven't we haven't let them go just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think like the big shift with the guitars is that when we started, it was um, mainly malleting on the bodies of the guitars to produce this sound where you need to have everything cranked really high because mm-hmm. the sounds you're generating are quite soft. Um, and then we kind of moved. We started incorporating third bridges, so this is um, objects inserted under the strings, like um, we use brass rods or bolts or things like that. And they they go under the strings and divide the string field up into two distinct segments. And what that gives you is this really overtony, chorusy, rich sound. It's to do with sympathetic resonances between the different portions of this divided string. Anyway, what that means is that the guitar stuff has become kind of louder and more sort of rich and glassy and less sort of cloudy or something like that. Mm. Um, And then, yeah, when we were in the trio, we'd started incorporating drums, started incorporating drums like... um, roundabout mallet guitars three we had a kick drum hi-hat in there and then when we did uh 22 strings john kind of effectively became the drummer for the band and me and ben each had two guitars each so that was the first time we worked with like a full drum kit um which was really interesting because it was trying to find a a drumming style that fits with the already very percussive music um which i think john did a, an amazing amazing Absolutely. job of finding a language you know um Absolutely. What, I, what i particularly like is that there's not a single drum fill um, no. anywhere um but we did also work with full drums on one of our large electric ensemble projects where we had jacob chabot playing drums and he was the only instrument that wasn't electric guitar which was really interesting because he had to kind of carry the whole thing <laughs> which again he, he did admirably you know <coughs> and then the the things that have started that have been added to the basic formula of the guitar and drums is uh cowbells have been a big one someone tipped us off it was actually um our friends in the band uh stealing sheep their drummer uh lucy mercer showed us one day that she picked up this really nice cowbell set from Dawson's for like 30 quid. Um, so, you know, you'd expect it to be absolutely crap. 
and she was playing it with a with a soft-headed mallet and it just sounded so tuneful i was like okay let's let's try that um and you know with the with the cowbells in there you you're able to get this but it just opened things up rhythmically because you can be a bit a lot crisper and more sort of rhythmically articulate but it's mm-hmm. also like brings to mind the the sort of percussive nature of you know Steve Reich or something like that without having to fork out for like a full size marimba or something you know and it's 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 quite uh it's also acoustically a very loud sound so a lot of our gigs up until fairly recently you know it was a lot of DIY spaces um mixed with you know some really nice venues as well but a lot of it was kind of often not going through PA and just using the amps and people stood around you in a circle you know and the cowbells are able to carry really far without being amplified so they were a good fit and then where it stands now we're still using them we've also got rotor toms so they're tunable sort of tom drums um and then i suppose the biggest thing has been the addition of electronics like the sampler i'm using for my solo stuff we've started using that in quite a fundamental role um it's just sort of broadening the sound out you know i think when you talk about a sampler most people kind of assume that you're you know taking bits of other people's records but for we don't do that we just do with you know sample our own sounds and and use them so it's been the addition of having this layer of foley and mm-hmm. of yeah of looping sounds and just uh, it's just allowed us to broaden the texture a lot more you know so that yeah that's where we're up to so the 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 line, the instrumental lineup's been quite consistent for a while, but it's um, it's sort of at its most full right now. We've also got the most opportunity for melody because we're using this keyed banjo I was talking about earlier. It can actually do melodic lines, which is not something we've been able to do too much of in the past. So you know, it's expanded in that way as well. With each uh, concert that I've seen over the years, there's also there's there's always been a really careful new addition to the um, to the performances that that they they sound like you've just it, they always look like you've just arrived at them very very naturally. But I think you know it, just from speaking to you, you know I, I know that you're very very careful about what sort of sound sources that you use in Exista. Um, yeah. the, bell, the bells especially were, I think, were quite a revelation seeing them live. I remember seeing them for the first time <laughs> when you were supporting, were you supporting 65 Days of Static? Yeah, yeah, in, in Manchester, Manchester Cathedral, Cathedral. Yeah, yeah. They, they very kindly invited us to, to open that for them. Yeah, and you, you set up, you didn't, you set up at the side of the stage in one of the sort of... Um, the transept or something. Yeah, yeah, and man, like... <laughs> you you just sounded incredible in that venue because obviously yeah. the, the space was so sympathetic to the, the natural sounds that you were creating especially the bells yeah um, what so what out, over the years what are some of the favorite techniques i mean i'll i'll shoot off a couple to you 
which we used in the large ensemble. But um, yeah, I really liked the knitting needle, which yeah. is a long, long grey plastic knitting needle, which you put at a certain point on the fretboard, usually on the 12th fret or sometimes was it the seventh or? Yeah, they're the main ones. Yeah. Uh, and you called it a, tw- a twanger. And you, yeah. would, you would smack the bottom of the knitting needle that was jutting out from the fret. Yeah, like like it would you would a, yeah, like you would a ruler on a school desk to make yes. it do that kind of boing thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's that. I mean, it's just such a powerful sound. Yeah. You know, it's it's real and it's really satisfying to do, and it's very visual. Mm. So I like doing that. You can generate a lot of bass that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the thing that we've the, the thing that we come back to time and time again is using the Allen key yes. on the guitar strings. So for me, what I love about this technique is because uh, just to explain to the people who are listening, you, you hold the Allen key in your strumming hand and you rest it on the strings and you let the kind of weight of the Allen key, which is obviously made of metal, um, press down on the strings or you gently push it onto the strings and you you just kind of oscillate it back and forth, almost like a little bow. So it's mm. like using a, a tiny metal cello bow on your strings. But when you try and bow guitar strings with a violin bow normally, it's a really hit and miss affair. It's very difficult to, to do properly because of the way guitar strings are made, the action on guitars, things like that. So I tried for years trying to do stuff with an actual bow on the guitar strings like um, Sigur Ross. Um, and also there's a bass, the bassist in my very first band who were called Horror Horror. Um, he used a bow on his bass very, very well. Um, and that really got me interested in, in these bowed sounds. Anyway, I could never make it work. And I found one day that using the Allen key you could have loads of control and actually because of the composition of the materials or something, the sound is very like a a string section in an orchestra. It sounds like orchestral strings, but with a bit of an edge. And so you can get this really rich sound. And then obviously you can slide very precisely and slowly and, you can just get these incredible kind of glissandos with it. So that is a technique that just keeps on keeps on giving. Um, I love using that. Um, and then something we've been doing recently is using small motors suspended above the guitar strings. This was introduced to us by uh, Vitalia Gloveskito, who's a Manchester-based composer. Um, and she was doing a lot of recycling of uh, different waste objects and using their components to make music and so she introduced us to recycling these mobile phone motors so it's the motor that makes your mobile phone vibrate and it's just a small rotating disc with two wires coming out of it that goes to a battery so we bought a load of these and hooked them up to batteries and then you just suspend them over the strings in like a little arm and, um, you know, they they bounce off the strings and kind of dance across them. And it, it's like it's both random and regular or it's like um, undetermined moves within a kind of determined frame 
the frame in this case being whatever you've tuned the guitar chord to that you're letting the motor loose on you know you know that it's going to be within these six notes but as to the order and how quickly it goes between them that's dependent just on the motor just doing its own thing so i really like that because there's this indeterminate quality to it but not so indeterminate that it's complete chaos <laughs> at one point i saw a set i think it was the one where i played um you very graciously let me play saxophone oh, uh, yeah, with you guys and you were um you were you had pre-recorded um i guess voice memos on all of your mobile phones yeah. and you created this choral effect um i guess you'd all sung a, a particular pitch or a particular note and That's had right, them recorded yeah. on the different phones and um and you played them through the pickup on the guitars yes which was gorgeous yeah well that's that's on the album we've we've got coming out where the track that uses that is called magnetic language mm. and i think that's come out really well because the the way that's working is yeah exactly as you say it's pre-recorded material playing out of our phones it's our voices and then the way you're the pickups work on a guitar means that if you just hold the phone speaker close to them, it picks up that sound, but it gives it a bit of a ghostly quality mm. uh, as well. And I, you know, I like that for a couple of reasons. Like we found a way to bring the voice into it, but quite obliquely. Um, secondly, we're, we're using this piece of very commonplace technology that everyone's got on them, more or less. Um, I quite like that. And also, you know, when you've been working with prepared guitars for a long time, as we have, you're always trying to find the balance between like coming up with new techniques and new ways to play it whilst avoiding like gimmickry or, or, or just being stupid, you know, <laughs> um, like, you know, the, the, it's like we, we could lay the guitars flat and, and really learn how to like, hammer on with you know four fingers of each hand hammering on in these complex arpeggios or something but that would be well easier if you just had the guitar on normally you know rather than flat so it's exactly. like okay let's not do that you know so you're trying to find like things that are true to the um the limitations you've imposed or something and um yeah i like the fact that we've managed to find this new technique that's not touching the strings or the body it's not touching the guitar at all it's mm. just it's just using its pickup to to amplify another sound so it's as far as guitar playing goes it's it would be unrecognizable as guitar playing to like my teenage yeah. self you know but <laughs> i like i like that i i think of that as guitar playing now, definitely you know. definitely and i think um using commonplace objects in the pursuit uh, in your in preparing the guitar is, is really a reoccurring theme of the Exeter yeah. Ironhead project and I think that's what makes it um for music that that isn't um you know it's it's not immediately accessible I think the fact that you're using these components people can just get it they just get it and there's this sort of I think that's why, um, you know, there's such a universal respect for Exista because, oh, because 
what you're doing is it's full of ideas and it's full of you know just the purity of like um experimentation and then you know ah well let's get an allen key and and rub it on the on the fretboard and and see what it sounds like there's i think people can get that instantly when they're watching you and but you do it with you're very slick at it now but it's not (laughs) slick slick's not the wrong word i think you just consistently deliver ideas during your set which makes it such a fascinating thing to watch live oh thank you well yeah you know i'm thinking about this as well you know with the using things like knitting needles or the allen keys or like you know for many years the bolts that we were putting under the strings to create this third bridge where the legs off when you have uh, post trays in work and they're like a plastic tray on like four metal legs that slots into another one and they're in like yeah. a, bit of a tower i i just there was a load of them in a skip outside work one day and i was like oh like those little metal things all they look like the right size to go under the guitar string so they ended up becoming our third bridges for years it's like oh perfect and then other things like using bamboo sticks to to hit the strings you know that came out of both like practicality in terms of like if you use a drumstick it's too heavy and it mm. you know you're, you're detuning your guitar too quickly and it's also a very harsh sound when you hit it really hard um you know if you use something really light like a knitting needle like a wooden knitting needle it's too light you know um so bamboo it's like okay that's strong but light and also, there's a shop down the road that will sell you a load of bamboo for next to nothing and <laughs> cut it to size for you there, you know. So it was like just using what was what was there, you know, as well as thinking, like, what, what are we trying to achieve, you know. Oh, amazing, amazing. Well, I'm always looking forward to seeing what, you're, what new, um, new creative device you're going to be using <laughs> in, in your new sets, man, and you, you consistently deliver. I think one of the great, great things about XC Star is just the the sheer openness that you've um, you've you've shown over the years for for collaboration. And if you don't mind, we're going to go through some of those. Um, yeah. Laura Cannell, the who who's whose work is sort of in early music, um, uh, early English and um, British music. Um, wouldn't necessarily f- sound like a good fit with you guys, but it, I mean, in practice, worked absolutely marvelously. So, how did you begin working with her? Yeah, I was actually trying to remember when we first met. Um, I'd definitely seen her play before we met. In fact, I can remember the first time I saw her play was at the Full of Noises Festival in Barrow. And her and her partner, Andre, who also plays a a viola i think um we're doing a piece um in the church in barrow where they were walking up and down in the church playing these beautiful drones on the on their stringed instruments but they also had those little battery powered amps that you can clip onto your belt and a little pick up on the strings as well so they you know they they both had the acoustic spatial thing at the instrument while they were walking around but then also this amplified component and that just sounded so good and i thought yeah this this is really superb and then i think i saw laura play a couple of times solo after that 
Um, can't remember when we first met, but whenever whenever we did get talking, you know, got on really well. Um, and then the first time we collaborated with her, it was thanks to Sounds from the Other City Festival in Salford. So um, Rivka Burns uh, at the festival there, um, along with... Uh, Emma Thompson, who does Fat Out, had, um, had, had suggested we collaborate with Laura, basically. And then that expanded to become us and Laura and some musicians of the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra. So it was a really interesting collaboration to begin with. I remember that we had like a kind of at least one day of R&D where it was just me, Ben, John and Laura playing around to see how Laura's sounds could interface with what we were doing um, and just managed to find this really like sympathetic meeting point between the two like really quite quickly um, oh, right amazing yeah just I'm trying to I think you know probably a, a shared starting point was the fact that Laura uses this overbow technique which is where the bow hair is unclipped from her violin bow and then stretched over all four strings of the instruments and then clipped back on so that the wooden part of the bow is underneath the instrument rather than resting on top with the hair on the strings. Basically what this means is that she can bow chords on the, on the fiddle, which you, you can't normally do. Um, so the fact that she was doing that and we were doing the Allen key stuff where we're also exciting all the strings of our instrument, you know, with the, with a kind of bowing technique, it was like, okay, let's start there. So I think, we, I think we probably did start there and then it gets into trying like, okay, well, Laura's music, it doesn't have any um, percussion in it. So let's try percussion and see what happens there and so on. And, yeah, we just had a really fruitful like R&D kind of session with her. And then we'd also done a bit of work the previous year, I think, with the BBC Phil. And we, we've done a, a couple of pieces where we've worked with orchestral musicians and notated music, basically. So we had a few ideas about how we might use an ensemble um, of players alongside what we we were all doing Laura had her own ideas and then I think it was a case of we had very limited time with the musicians because classical musicians are really you know they they run on really strict schedules um, and so yeah we it was just a bit of back and forth and shaping it and yeah the, we ended up doing this piece in Salford Cathedral with um yeah prepared guitars Laura on a recorder and strings and we had um trumpet and violin and I can't remember what else anyway it was it was really good I've got a recording of that somewhere I don't think we ever even named the piece but it was that was the first thing we did together um and then we did a few gigs together but the the, the main collaboration was the Whistling Arrow record which was uh, ourselves Laura Canal her partner, Andre Bosman, um, and uh, Charles Hayward, uh, who I believe you've worked with as well, Dave. Yeah. Uh, absolute, <laughs> absolute legend. 
indeed. Um, so, so with um, I wanted to speak a bit more about the BBC Philharmonic collaboration because I think you did that two consecutive years uh, at Sounds from the Other City. You did one yeah. first off with just with, with with just you and players from the BBC Phil, Phil, and then the second was obviously with Laura. Um, now I know that you are not um, you you can't read or write music, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the same as me. So was that daunting? I mean, obviously, you're, you're going to be working with bona fide, classically trained musicians. <coughs> I'm sure. Well, did Or were Ben and John helpful in this respect? Well, you know, this kind of highlights one of the things I really love about the the people who are in my band, you know, my, my, my dear friends who I get to play music with is that they, they bring each of us brings different strengths. And in this case, you know, uh, both John and Ben, particularly John, um, are really shit hot on notation and understanding kind of how orchestral music works and how, you know, what the practicalities are of writing for a particular instrument. You know, they'll, they'll have a quick look and see what's the range of it. And, you know, then they'll, show me on the keyboard or whatever that's the range this is in or something and we will work from there and likewise you know they can john has been very patient over the years in transcribing my ideas into like notated form you know but the thing we found was because of the sort of time limitations that you have in working with these musicians uh you know the there's a couple of ways of going about it. There's either sitting at home really meticulously working stuff out, which some of it was, um, you know, really going through it bar by bar and working out what you want it to sound like. And then there's another way, which is kind of dialoguing with the musicians themselves and saying, I'm looking for this kind of thing. What, what would you do? you know and kind of guiding them that way and then they'll notate it down as they go or it might be semi-improvised but if i if i recall rightly most of the stuff we did i think we actually did three of these bbc film collaborations i think we did two just ex easter and then one with laura Cannell. but anyway in nearly all of them there wasn't loads of improvisation it was it was pretty scored out you know um and yeah, so like each of us in the band just had a different way of bringing stuff to the table for that. You know, I think with me, you know, I'm trying to remember, but I think my parts that I wrote, you know, I used Alan Key guitar as my thing. So I said, well, if I'm doing these chords on it, you know, going from this point to this point to this point, then uh, can I hear some harmonies that would go with that? You know, so then John or Ben would play me the harmonies on the keyboard or something along with that. And then we'd say, okay, well, why don't we try that one on the trumpets or that one on the harp? Or, you know, so it kind of arrived like that. Whereas uh, both John and Ben, I think, went away and just worked at home on their own, you know, manuscript paper and a keyboard and 
and and and did it did it the old fashioned way and turned up with yeah, just like... cigarettes <laughs> pouring over manuscript paper yeah, exactly. yeah on a piano yeah hair yeah. all scraggled yeah yeah big uh, quill pen <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah you know and then turned up with just like amazing stuff and then and then between the three of us you know we'd fig- figure out different ideas as well how so how was it working with the actual the bbc phil um musicians like were they were they open to it were they did you find the working relationship good it's uh it's always interesting working yeah. with musicians like both john and myself from the group we both for years were working uh with the liverpool philharmonic which is an orchestra and concert hall in liverpool you know, it's just like the receptionist on the stage mm. door. So I actually spent like six years or so working with orchestral musicians most days of the week, you know, just getting chatting to them, listening to their rehearsals a lot, seeing them play, you know, hearing them moan, seeing them made up, like, you know, uh, really interesting. So I had a bit of a uh, insight into how things are done before mm. we started working with them, which I think definitely helped. So, like, I remember before we started working with classical musicians, you know, we were like, okay, they run on really strict timings. You know, a rehearsal will be 45 minutes and then bang on the minute, you know, 15-minute break, something like that. And then it's like, you know, you get another 45 minutes and, you know, there's like a real, there's a structure to it that's been the same for years. Like, mm. um, and they work within that structure, you know, the same way as anyone going to their job, you know, who has a regular lunch break and regular hours and stuff like that. You know, they work to that structure. So it was like, we've got to make sure that we're not wasting a minute of that 45 minutes or however long it is between tea breaks, you know, um, Another thing was I knew that volume would be a problem, like mm-hmm. because it's so strange because obviously the the decibel levels that orchestras can reach is is huge. The dynamic range that these musicians are playing in is is huge, is ginormous compared to a lot of music we've been involved in, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they perceive volume in a in a different way. So even though they'll have been around some of these bombastic climaxes where it's super loud, they won't perceive that as loud in the same way as a, an electric guitar soloed being strummed quite heavily. That will seem much louder to them. Like I think it's something to do with the way amplified sound, their relationship to amplified sound or something like electrically amplified sound. Anyway. A long way of saying that uh, no matter how much you think you've turned your amp down, it can always go down a bit further when you're working with classical <laughs> musicians. But, you know, once, we, once we've once we got our heads around the volume and the really strict kind of time limits and time and positions, it was wonderful because, you know, the musicians we were working with had been they'd signed up for this kind of extracurricular activity because they're the sort of musicians who want to do something interesting. Uh, so so it wasn't like they'd been pulled out of class and made to do something <laughs> they didn't want to do. They had actually signed up for it, you know. 
and they were really just really interesting people with just brought their own things to it and I, I remember we did open up we did kind of let them come up with parts and stuff after a while because it was like oh we sort of trust that they kind of get the language we're working in yeah they know the piece stuff. yeah and i think they they the, the thing i've always found when we've worked with classical musicians and also with speaking with classical musicians a lot in my old job the thing they uh seem to always be in aura is that we the likes of you and i perform music without notation on a for most of our lives you know they're always asking like how do you remember it all <laughs> you know uh, that seems to be the thing they're most impressed by but um i think i think the musicians enjoyed working with us i remember the vibe being very warm um and I, I did run into some of them a while back and they had nice things to say so it's a good project that. brilliant brilliant can you remember what instrumentation there was i mean you mentioned trumpet and that uh, harp yeah you, was there bass clarinet uh God, I don't remember. There might have been clarinet. There was definitely violin, viola. One year there was a double bass as well. Oh, nice. Um, uh, maybe flute. Mm. I honestly can't remember. I need to. I need to go back and listen to these recordings. Actually. Yeah. So you you did manage to. <laughs> I, I'm sure you got the live um the live concerts recorded. Did you record any of the rehearsals? Yes, but God knows where they are now. Right, right. Any <laughs> yeah. plans? Any plans to release any of this? It's funny, actually. the 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 trouble is because they're, you know, fully unionized BBC orchestral ah. musicians. I think we'd be getting into tricky waters and and licensing and contracts and things that we just haven't had the energy or inclination to to go near because I'd love to make this music heard. And then I got thinking, well, it's my recording. I, I recorded it on the Zoom just at the side. So, like, you know, <laughs> you do it as, like, an official bootleg. But, you know, <laughs> the thing is that the music, you know, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't disrespect all the musicians I've played with by, you know, I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to uh, upset the people we played with, basically, because they were brilliant. Um so I don't know, at some point I should probably look into what the rules are around that stuff, but we do have a really nice recording. One uh, collaboration that did sort of make sense was um, with the composer Arnold Dreyblatt, which is a sort of major coup, right? Um, yeah, yeah, that um, was an honour. How, how did that come about? So I first got introduced to... Arnold's music by George Maund, right? Possibly even before X Easter Island Head was a thing. And it's just so sort of stark and it's quite stern mm. music. It's very pure, very unadorned, like quite heavy um, in, in, like, in this super rational, mathematical kind of drone way. But then it's also got a bit of swing and swagger to it as well. Um, so I mean, he was he was on my radar, and I was thinking oh, I should really love to do something with this guy at some point. Never met him. And then there was a a British Council uh, fund that I saw, which was 
um, you know, something like early career artists can apply for it to work with someone who doesn't live in the UK, who you want to work with. And I knew that Dre Black lived in Berlin. So I just thought, let's try it. Let's 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 at least get in touch with him and see what happens. I've got in touch with him. I think he got back like a couple of hours later. Next day we were video calling. Um and I proposed that he come to Liverpool, meet us, do some work with us, whatever that may be, and then that we would also fly out to Berlin and do some work with him there. Um and what eventually ended up happening is I think we did that twice. He came to Liverpool twice and we went to Berlin twice, um, which meant that we absolutely stretched the budget to within an inch of its life. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, looking back on it now, you know, we just put Arnold up in like the spare room in our kind of really grotty shared house, uh, which was a bit of a party house as well. Um and I probably would have spent some of the money on, you know, maybe like getting a hotel or something. Um, <laughs> just looking back on it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was like a complete honour to work with him. He's a fascinating guy, you know, and full of like incredible stories. And, you know, his music is absolutely incredible. I think we didn't quite nail it with that collaboration in terms of I think if we'd had more time working together um, we'd have made something of it what we ended up with was we did a live show in Berlin which went really really well and we did another one in Liverpool which was it was the same material but not as well done at that point we developed it a bit more when we did it in Berlin and Mm -hmm. It sounded really interesting, but it was, it just needed a bit more work. And basically the time and money ran out. Um, So, yeah, we've stayed in touch and like we'd love the idea of working together in the future. But I think as well, the way Arnold's music operates, it's focused on such pure kind of, yeah, like mathematical intervals and stuff like that. And it's used in just intonation. And our guitars and our understanding of all this kind of overtone language was just not advanced enough to yeah. to interface with Arnold's ideas. The stuff that came out that was most successful from that was that we expanded our instrumentation to, we had a keyboard there which the pitches of the keyboard were all in just intonation and they were all sine waves, like simple sine wave tones, which in, interacts really beautifully with Arnold's bowed bass. So the the way he makes his music is he has a double bass strung with piano strings. Oh, like, wow. I mean, I've it, been thinking about doing, I was thinking about doing that myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, he either beats the strings with the bow, like kind of in a rhythmic and hammering thing, Mm. Which again, you know, sounds really ex Easter, you know, yeah, like yeah, those yeah. two things intertwine really nicely. Or he bows it, but either way, it's this like super pure sound. Um, and yeah, the, that sound along with this sine wave chords 
on the keyboard all in just intonation was probably the most successful sounding thing whereas the our guitar language i don't think was quite there or it just wasn't quite right so it was a it was a it was a near a near thing that collaboration we didn't quite get like a record out of it but we had an amazing time work with an accountant as a, a dear friend and i know he had a great time with us we, we gave him a beatles tour of liverpool Oh, brilliant! Um, <laughs> and he he was a huge Beatles fan on account of having watched them on the um, Ed Sullivan show when they made their US debut, and you know, so he was buzzing, and uh, which just uh, just real fond memories of us uh, going around the Beatles Story Museum, and then me and Arnold went to the Tate Gallery, and you know, they had some Robert Longo pieces in there. The known Robert Longo back when they lived in New York together, and wow. you know, it just it just great stories, and we had some we had some good nights out as well. So yeah, we're really uh, we'd love to do more with Arnold at some point, and he's uh, he's he's a wonderful man. The greatest thing to hear about that is that although you think it didn't quite work, it's been a valuable learning experience from you. And you, oh, and you, fur, you furthered your own practice as a result of it. And, you know, should, should a collaboration arise again, you sort of know what, you're, you, what, what would be appropriate to bring to the table from your absolutely. side of things. Absolutely, yeah. Which is absolutely. brilliant to hear, man. That's really, really great. And um, yeah, I guess, you, you know, more power to you for taking the risk man um yeah and i think it's it's also you know it's worth like acknowledging when when things haven't quite worked as absolutely. well like, absolutely absolutely I, I think it's um it's a bit boring if you're always trying to put positive spin on it i mean there is positive spin as you just said you know lessons learned we made a great friend and things like that but yeah it's just like okay how can we do this better next time we're in this position well, Let's hope there is a next time, definitely. Yeah. So we, we kind of skirted over this, but how did you, how did Whistling Arrow come about? How did, how did Charles Hayward get involved in your collaboration with Flora? I'm pretty sure them two had begun making music together, which makes sense because they were in um, Emma and Emma Thompson and Rivka Burns' orbit over here in Manchester. And they yeah. Promoting both work by both Laura and Charles. Yeah. So the way that came about was Laura Canal was. Um, oh, and sorry, Laura, if you're listening, I can never remember whether it's Canal or Canal. I really must get to the bottom of that. Yeah. Um, apologies, Laura. <laughs> um, but um, Laura had been doing a concert, a touring concert series called Modern Ritual, um, and. Uh, it was like Luke Turner and Jennifer Lucy Allen doing readings, Laura and Andre Bosman playing uh, solo sets, and then also Charles Hayward doing his incredible piece, the 30-minute snare drum roll, as mm. well as um, some workshop pieces as well, I think. So they were they were all on tour together, and then X Easter ended up jumping on for a couple of dates, and we knew that we had this gig coming up, where we were playing in Barrow in Furness, and um, I suggested, uh, let's do some. I think, well, one of us suggested, let's why don't we use the days after the gig to do some recording and see where that goes? Um, and then Laura said, Oh, well, seeing as 
Charles is on the road with us. Why don't we ask Charles if he wants to be in on it? Um, Andre was there as well. He's a phenomenal musician as well. And he came in on it. So suddenly we were a six-piece band. Wow. And um, our friend Andrew Ellis, who has worked as a promoter and artist manager uh, here in the Northwest for, for years now, he was involved in some kind of scheme at the time with Par Street Studios in Liverpool where he was hooking artists up with them and there was some, again, some funding or some opportunity to basically do free recording in Par Street Studios, which is, it's it's not there anymore, but, you know, it it's had some pretty huge albums recorded in it. It, it was a proper old I mean, you know, I say old, I think it was built in the 80s, but it it was kitted out in, in that classic big studio, expensive studio way that, you know, I've only ever been in a handful of times in my life. You know, ginormous control room, massive live room with a gorgeous grand piano in it, you know, just incredible gear and, you know, just a, a, a whole building that's been custom designed, you know, with all the best stuff. <laughs> like uh, it, it really you know because a lot of studios we all worked in over the years are you know a little bit more sort of homespun a little bit more diy this is like real serious record business type studio you know where like the first two coldplay albums recorded there and stuff oh one of them was anyway um yeah so it, it was this really interesting proposition of you've got a six-piece improvising group getting to record in a really like world-class recording studio with a great engineer, Chris Taylor, uh, on the controls. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't costing us anything as well. So that, that was a very kind of freeing <laughs> feeling. And, and we all did this gig together in Barrow, and then we knew that we were going to convene in Liverpool the next day. Uh, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning and, and do a session. So we got in and like they'd contacted Charles ahead of time. You know, there's a couple of different kits he could use. They'd give him an equipment list and they basically assembled a beautiful drum kit for Charles, you know, which he, he might've brought his own cymbals. I can't remember. Brought a few bits and, you know, very quickly got the kit tuned and sounding really good. Um, Exista brought down prepared guitars, but also toy piano. I remember we brought down, which John did some good stuff on that. John Herring, out of our group, is mainly a keys player. Uh, that's what that's what he classes as his main instrument. So we actually decided to put John mainly on the grand piano uh, wow. that was in the studio, just because it mm. was there and just thought that could be interesting and Laura played recorder and uh, strings and Andre also did uh, viola and uh, electronics I couldn't tell you what his electronics were but they sound fantastic on the record and then myself and Ben were playing prepared guitar and it was just completely improvised um, I remember even the like let's just play a little something so they can get the levels right. That ended up going on the record, the very first <laughs> thing we did, just because it was like, well, that was that was good, wasn't it? Um, and we, I think we probably recorded about five and a half hours worth of material. Um, and 
none of it felt particularly uh, bad, to be honest. Like, it just um, took a while to get to the point in a lot of cases, as, as improv things will. So we distilled it down to a record, and I think it's really strong, to be honest. I think it shows off everyone a great light. Particularly for me, I loved playing with Charles because he's such a... Um, he's very open and like generous player in that he's always giving you feedback when you're playing with him just through his head movements and his facial expressions and he kind of is always scanning around and and making eye contact with everyone in the group you know he's always making sure that everyone can see him and he can see them but in a really warm uh nurturing yeah really just lovely like so supportive and you know that there's no greater feeling than to be improvising away on something and and to hear charles start to respond and then you look up and look at him and he's just kind of nodding at you and his eyes are really wide and he's just sending out just such encouraging energy he's also also just did a brilliant thing on that session of there's he's such a rock solid metronomic player and then he also can go really elastic quite deliberately so there's points where the tempo they're not they feel different to speed ups and slowdowns in a normal sense he just does something where he he'll change the tempo but in a very compositional way in a way that pivots the whole piece at that moment and you know exactly what you should be doing when he you does it. can feel the shift, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I, what I've gotten with him. And also, you know, what you were saying, he is such a communicative yeah. um, and ex- and expressive in his communication. Because, yeah. um, in, in, you know, in, in, a, in a live setting, in an improvised setting, it's quite intense. It can be quite intense. But I've never felt safer on stage than playing with him. He's like... He's just got you, right? And he's looking yeah. out for everyone. He is, yeah. He's just fantastic. And then, yeah, so that that was like a, a real privilege and an honour. But, you know, all the musicians we played with on that, I mean, Andre Bosman um, isn't perhaps as well known as, as the rest of us. He was doing stuff under the name Hoofus, and he does. Mm. he's done all sorts of things over the years. Um, and I think he does, he, he do, does music for sort of indie computer games and things like that but his that's amazing yeah his his use of um electronics just his electronics sound like they've come out of marsh water or something they they feel dead earthy and like covered in soil or so they just feel so of a piece with the sounds that laura plays and and yet also with they, they just they that was like the kind of the real um, nice surprise of that session was um, was Andre's electronics. I really loved that. But you know, Laura, incredible improviser, incredible player. Mm. You know, but we we played with her the most out of all those musicians. So I kind of knew what to expect, and she still surprised me with being absolutely amazing. You know, <laughs> yeah, I really I really loved that record, and um, yeah, we were really lucky that uh, Jason Starlet got unknown wanted to put it out as well. So it was. It was a really happy one. And uh, is it still available on uh, Jason's label, God Unknown? 
the the vinyl sold out ages yeah. ago. Yeah, I remember it going shifting quite quickly actually, which yeah. is really great. Really, yeah. really great. Pe- people really responded to it, and um, Stuart Lee ended up doing the the sleeve notes for it as well because he's kind of fans of all, all of our music. So we asked asked him to write the sleeve notes. We thought, well, let it go. Yeah, and, uh, and um, his sleeve notes are amazing and really helped flesh out the music and yeah i was really grateful for that it was very nice of him yeah get a bit of visibility for the record as well yeah 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 exactly naturally naturally yeah who who um and lastly on that who who edited it who edited the sessions um it was it was all of us in a way um in that like we all listened through and then you know it's this kind of thing of you're basically subjecting a big five and a half hour chunk of music like that it's a succession of smaller and smaller zivs isn't it you know yeah you start with the broad brush strokes of like okay that ain't made it like that's a maybe that's gold or whatever Mm -hmm. and then you start saying well okay this piece that's gold it's 17 minutes long um you know (laughs) what's what's the really golden bit (laughs) you know um but so i think as it got into the finer and finer detail that was more something that i took on because i ended up going into the studio to mix it with chris taylor uh who who recorded it and so i knew that going into the studio i'd really have to know it's between this time and this time that's that's the first piece this time mm-hmm. and this time that's the second piece because there's such a lot of material there you needed to be really on it to to isolate the actual what the pieces were so you could mix them so yeah it was yeah great great right that you've you've done two of these now but there's uh you've you've sort of broadened out the x easter experience <laughs> i can't believe i just said that but you've done <laughs> you've done two large ensemble um projects it's actually uh, it's actually three. Sorry is it? Correct. Yeah, we did one in Denmark as well. Oh, of um, course. Yeah. So, so the two, the other one you're referring to will be um, the Nottingham. Not, Nottingham Large Electric Ensemble, which we did in 2012, and then the Salford Large Ensemble, which was 2016, um, mm-hmm. and then yeah, the third one, which we did in 2020, was in Audense in um, Denmark. So with. Nottingham was kind of early days in 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 X Easter's life. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, the the way that came about was I think highly illustrative of how things work for this band. So basically <laughs> that the I was working in the Liverpool Phil and I worked on the reception desk and one of my jobs was to go through the mail and dish out people's mail and also just throw away reams and reams of junk mail that came through but you know you'd often open quite a bit of it just to see what was in there so you could determine if it was junk and one day I was in work and I opened this bit of junk mail and it was just a single-sided flyer and it was an open call out for UK artists aged 18 to 30 in any field uh, to apply for an event called the World Event Young Artists Festival, or WEA, 
which was taking place in Nottingham in 2012. So that was part of the cultural Olympiad. So the culture celebrations going alongside the Olympics, which we hosted in that year. And I looked at it and I was like, okay, that's in Nottingham. Um, looks like it's going to be really interesting because they were advertising it as a thousand artists from a hundred countries, all aged 18 to 30. I was about 25 at the time, I think. And also Nottingham was where the label that had been releasing our records was, Low Point Records from by Gareth Hardwick. So I thought, okay, well, if we go to Nottingham, um, there's going to be a lot of musicians there we can hook up with. The festival's 10 days long, so we're not just going to do like one gig and then just hang out. Like I want to, I want to do something special. So the idea of doing a large electric, a large ensemble came to mind and I thought, okay, well, what we could do is we could hit up low point records and get some of the people that are in their orbit involved. And then I also knew uh, Chris Summerlin, who lived in Nottingham as well, and was also, you know, had released stuff on the label. And I just thought, okay, between these people, we, we'll be able to meet loads of people and, and and propose for this unique event that we do something big and and grand, you know. Um, so that's how that came about, and it was it was fantastic, you know. And the thing is, with that, we even though we've obviously been making music by hitting guitars and laying them flat and things like that, we were thinking about the logistics of that. And we thought, well, most people aren't actually going to want to hit their guitars with a percussion mallet. Uh, we only do it because we've got cheap guitars and that's why we're making our music that way. Most people probably don't want to do that. So we we need to do something that sounds like X Easter, but also allows people who don't play like us to be involved. So we settled on this idea of the third bridge guitar. So this is coming back to the bolt placed under the strings to give it this chorusy, overtony sound. Um, and people will wear their guitars like normal around their shoulders, um, but they'll have third bridges in. So that was the basic idea for that. And then we got thinking, well, how do you, how do you write that? Mm. <laughs> and then how do you communicate that to players? No one who was in the band at the time uh, other than John, could do notated music. None of the players, or nearly all of the players we were working with, couldn't read notated music. It wouldn't have made much sense doing it as guitar tab because we're using extended techniques. So we, we kind of devised our own scores for it, like this simple thing to do with when's an open string, when's a muted string. We, we split the, the ensemble was um, 16 players. And we split it so that one half was tuned to one particular chord and one half was tuned to another. And they both complement each other. And then within those two halves of the ensemble, you say, OK, someone's always got their third bridge at 12th fret. Someone else has got it at seventh. Someone's got it at fifth. So between that, you suddenly start to generate this like density. Um, and yeah, we, we worked out like a graphic score and it it came quite quickly if i remember i think we were just in a really good creative period at that point and that that remains one of the highlights of, of the band so far was doing that festival just because you know we've met artists our age from all over the world like 
you know, going out on the piss with people from like Israel and Namibia and, you know, um, like Moldova, you know, like just really fascinating, youthful time with where so many ideas flying round and goodwill and stuff just it was a really a real moment that felt very in step with with the kind of vibe in 2012 anyway you know with the the olympics and stuff going on and it feels quite a long way away from where we're at now i know a lot of people keep falling back on the like i don't know if you've seen this people keep referring back to like the olympic opening ceremony it's like oh last time the country was great or something don't know if i fully buy into that but i certainly know that this festival in 2012 we did just totally opened our eyes and you know, allowed us this platform to try something really ambitious. Amazing, amazing. So, <clears throat> Nottingham was recorded and that's been released. Is it was is, is it a download only? Is that right? No, that that came out on vinyl, um, but it sold out ages ago. Um, on Low Point. Yeah, on Low Point Records, and yeah, you can you can still download that one. It's just called Large Electric Ensemble, and we we toured that a bit as well um, did, yeah yeah uh, you know we we were lucky enough to get some arts council funding to tour it i remember we had a brilliant sold out show at cafe otto which was felt really special and then we also played it at um supersonic festival and um had the um unique spectacle of michael jira with uh full 10 gallon hat and cigar pacing up and down in front of the stage while we were sound checking he was the only person in the venue and he was just smoking away pacing <laughs> up and down not looking very happy and then we stopped playing and he just said sounds good <laughs> so you think he did do, do you think he dug it I think he will have dug it because he was he played a lot with Branca back in right, the day yeah, so course. he's yeah. he himself is no stranger to guitar ensembles i'm sure he was probably thinking well i've seen this before yeah uh, and probably i've seen this before but better uh, but <laughs> he was gracious enough to say sounds good so you know we put him on uh uh i think it was when trying to what's i think the second album was called the seer and uh when yeah. i was still when i was still promoting with fat out um we managed to put him on at a venue called sound control and he was adamant that the air conditioning was off and he was just smoking cigars liberously uh, his, the entire time, irregardless of the fact that you could not smoke indoors, just did not give a fuck. <laughs> and people were fainting during their concert because they played, of course, for about two and a half hours. And uh, people were fainting <laughs> during the concert because he, he was adamant that the uh, the air conditioning had to be off. So it's really, really much. intense. Yeah, <laughs> a bit much, a bit much. So... The the second large ensemble was yeah. was Salford, yeah, um, and that was that was part of a Samabita residency. That's right, yeah. Again, with Rivka Burns and Emma Thompson uh, facilitating yeah. that. Two people who've done an inordinate amount for this band, like mm, oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, for me personally as well. I, yeah, know. we we always say. Um, uh, well, I'd said this to Rivka. I said if if we were a football team, we would have 
one of our stands named after her. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like that's how much she's done for us. But um, yeah, the, the, with the Salford Large Ensemble, the the thing, the big difference there was that we decided to go with trying to make it more like our ex Easter trio sets. So tabletop guitars this time. Um, and we were also a big thing that we knew we had to do differently was that when we did the Nottingham one, it was 16 players and 15 of them were blokes. Um, there was one woman and, uh, we just, well, I hadn't even considered that Mm. like when we were putting it together. And afterwards, it was like, hang on, this isn't very representative or it's less interesting just mm-hmm. being all all guys and nearly all guys. It was like, we can't do it like that again. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there needs to be a representation here. And also just, I just think the music will benefit, you know, from, from bringing a broader range of, of people into the piece. So, so that was one thing we wanted to do was open up the ensemble in that way and then also yeah the instrumentation um and it felt like um the the difference between the the two is i think the players with the salford large ensemble were like a little bit um like a little bit freakier <laughs> really <laughs> like, yeah like i think people were involved in like much weirder art practices like multidisciplinary practices mm. that weren't necessarily just bands like and that's no disrespect to any of our Nottingham players who are, are all amazing and been in amazing bands but it would that they just felt like a, a notable difference was that there was a bit more of a kind of freakier element I think to the Salford one which which I really liked and you know it was it was tied to Islington Mill you know that mm-hmm. was our base operations uh and where we workshopped it developed it rehearsed it and performed it uh before taking it on tour so you know we had this location this this headquarters to mm-hmm. to work out of and you know there's so many people already associated with that space so Nod for example most of Nod came on board as players in the ensemble, you had all the people who had rehearsal rooms in there. You know, Sam Weaver, who was there at the time, was recorded the piece for us when we premiered it. You know, there was um, a lot of connections in that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I was obviously part of that um, ensemble. Um, and it was just such a great experience um, because we yeah you did use use graphic scores again for that piece but i think they were a bit more detailed um yeah but they were detailed in a fashion that were it was just so easy to quickly get what what was needed for certain sections of the piece um and you sort of uh, i think the other thing that really worked is that you sort of you grouped um players together in like trios or duos yeah. and and we would all sort of look after the, the certain aspect of our particular part of the score and so they kind of fostered this uh, real com- camaraderie we're all yeah. sort of helping each other out like understand the piece 
what to do at certain particular moments. And, and people become, you know, like section leaders. Yeah. Like, just by virtue of like, like I remember um, Marlene Rivero, formerly of Nod. I remember there was one particular bit where she was the first person out of her section who like got her head around it. Like, yeah, you I know, remember. She she mastered it first, you know, mm. and so then she's bringing the other people up to speed, and that's really yeah. nice when you look around the room and you've got Marlene doing that with the two people in her group, and you look over to another group and someone else is is showing the other people, and yeah. That that is it's a beautiful thing that I mean I have really fond memories of doing that piece, um, but I've I've also I I have a fair hefty dose of criticism for for us as a mm-hmm. uh, for ex Easter on that I think we didn't quite um, make the most of that group of players we had so I think the first large electric large electric ensemble worked because of the players we had and the time constraints and things like it worked being quite simple and kind of, you know, it, it didn't really, in terms of parts, it, there wasn't loads of parts going on. It, it can be arranged quite easily for like a three piece band. You know, we've, we've done that, but it was just kind of adding weight and harmony and, and things like that's what the, the sort of, large number of people brought to it with the Salford Large Ensemble where I see us as having kind of failed a little bit is that we had all these interesting players playing a much wider range of instruments everyone in the Nottingham piece were selected because they were guitarists when it came to Salford you know we had like the likes of yourself and Carl De Silva, both saxophone players and keys players as well as guitar players. You know, we had numerous people in there who could play drums. I'm thinking of like JT from Lotion um, mm-hmm. and like, uh, you know, various people in there, multi-instrumentalists um, and have their own very distinct musical personalities. And we imposed on everyone to play exactly as we did and which you know that that works sometimes and it worked for some sections of the piece like you know this is only going to work if we write this big score thing and and say here's your part here's your part but the 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 unfortunate thing is that you forced everyone to kind of there wasn't room for self-expression really um and I wish we'd allowed more for that. I think it would have been a richer piece as a result. And I, I think as well, just where we were sort of up to you know, various things going on in our personal lives and where the band was at, at that point, we just weren't quite burning as intensely as we could have done in terms of our ideas. So I feel like we nearly nearly got there with the Salford Lodge Humble. I mean, the shows are amazing, particularly the supersonic festival one that's one of my favorite moments with the band and you know the crowd really liked it but when it came to trying to make the piece into a record we didn't have one single live recording that all the way through did it justice and then the more we and then we tried to record it in the studio and that didn't quite work either and the more i was listening to it the more i was thinking 
this isn't the fault of the recording or the performance. It's a fault of the material. It's mm. not as fully developed as it could be. It just didn't quite get there. But I think the the experience and the sort of networks and friends, like friends more than networks, the friends we made doing that. And then the fact that this acts as a, a kind of, you know, people end up pairing off or forming new things because they've met doing the large ensemble. You know, yeah. I, I think that's really interesting. And on a practical level, you know, the f- filmmaker, uh, Tommy, uh, Tommy Husband, who we had come and film us at the Deaf Institute, you know, then picked up some work off other members of the ensemble who wanted things filming. So on a practical, oh, wow. you know, on a practical level, it's it's like, it's all kind of paying, it's helping keep our section of the music world like it's it's helping invigorate that and and give people work yeah at times as well yeah. so i think there's value in that and and you know just yeah yeah i mean people people who are involved said they they learned a lot basically and you know how did you find it affected your practice i mean i personally found it i, I mean you said that you sort of felt bad about imposing um the, the set way that x easter work on a large group was sort of limiting them but I found it um to be absolutely invigorating um because your practice is so unique to your band no one else is doing it no one else is doing it um so to learn all these new techniques I'd certainly looked at the guitar uh, completely differently and you know on all although it's not <laughs> made its way into any projects like aging or anything like that um it's given me an appreciation to to look at the guitar um, not just as a, a fretted instrument. You know, there's there's more to be done with it. And the real moment, and I think you, if you said, if you asked a few people, I know it's certainly true of like uh, Paddy and Chris. You know, we've talked about it, and we talked about it at the time when we had had a break from rehearsal. That Allen key bit when there was like twenty. Or thir- how many guitars were there eventually? It, it, it was, I think the most we had at any one time was 20. I think we, we were around about 18 players for the most of it. Yeah, 20 guitars doing that Allen key um, <laughs> chorus was, um, you know, that was, that was almost spiritual. Uh, hearing that, man, and being, yeah. that was obviously, that was my favorite moment of the actual piece really like the ending as well um uh admittedly we could have get got it a bit tighter um but you know when you when you when uh, i mean you had to organize 20 mu- individual musicians time and make yeah, sure they I can mean, rehearse that was <laughs> that was knackering like i bet it was and the know, logistics well it, it's it's not only the logistics of teaching everyone the music it's the logistics of like Get it, telling everyone where they need to be, yeah. making sure there's enough spare leads, mm. beaters, plex, whatever, you know, batteries for people's tuners, you know, there's feeding everyone, <laughs> there's like making sure there's like chairs for everyone, <laughs> you know, it's basic, yeah. it's basic stuff, but we don't often have to think about it at this scale doing, mm. doing bands, you know, yeah. and then when it came to like actually touring it, organizing the transport we never we never had any hotels did we it was always there no. back. it would have been a fucking fortune if we'd had hotels Imagine. but I, I remember marching into a 
a vegan um, Chinese restaurant in Bristol that we've been recommended and saying, can you feed 20 of us in the next uh, 50 minutes, please? And, and they were very game and they did, you know. Um, but like, there's all that stuff to worry about whilst you're also trying to like make a good piece. And, yeah, uh, and deal with the things that aren't working and sort yeah. of the adjustments that you need to make to the piece to make it more uh, cohesive. Yeah, and and so I think we actually addressed a lot of these sort of shortcomings when we did the large ensemble in Denmark because there we, we took a different approach where we decided, okay, rather than start from scratch with like, let's build a whole new piece from the ground or why don't we offer some of the things we've been working on as a, as a four piece band as jumping off points. Like, mm-hmm. so at the very least, they'll end up as like mega orchestrated versions of songs that we're already working on. Or they'll go in some totally new direction off the back of some idea. And then that all feeds back into the four piece band, you know. So actually, the, the with the uh, large ensemble in Odense in Denmark, um, we went with that approach, but also letting play, you know, giving players a framework to work out their own part. And nice. that, that made for a much more expressive piece that also captures something of the place you're in and the people that you've, you're working with, because everyone's got a chance to inject a bit of their personality. Mm-hmm. You know, we had one guy playing with us who was, you know, he was playing prepared guitar as part of the piece, but in his solo practice, he also did stuff with like kind of a couple of old tape machines and stuff. So it was like, let's let's get that in there. You know, we worked with a vocalist and it's like, well, okay, we're not going to do lyrics, but um, we're also not going to write her vocal lines because she's the vocalist. That's her instrument. So mm. she knows her instrument best. You know, like, all right, maybe we can write some guitar stuff for people. And it was the same with the percussionists. We had a fantastic, like, number of percussionists. We had a tabla player and a darbuka player. And and then we also had a guy with a cymbal on, you know, like a big sort of, like a huge hammered dulcimer type instrument. And it's like, well, you, you know these instruments better than we do, so you should write your parts for them. But we'll give you a bit of a framework to work within and they really got it so we ended up making a piece that sounded like very much like us but with all this color that we would never have thought to put into it and it also just makes it less stressful because people are are coming up with their own parts and they're also invested in in their own parts whereas if you're teaching everyone to play like you and you've got this graphic score exhaustion sets in at some point because mm-hmm. it's a little bit more, um, you know, you're a bit more like a teacher or something. Whereas I think we kind of cracked with this third large electric ensemble. Here's a way that you can actually use the the resources at your disposal, the people at your disposal, like to in the best way. So that that was that felt like we kind of atoned for some of our mistakes, but you know 
I, I don't really consider the Salford Large Ensemble like a failure or anything, but I wish we'd been more together. The core Exeter players, this is, to have um, just brought the piece home, you know, just to have given it just that little bit more so that we came out of it with a really good record. Yeah. R- right now, it's a series of live recordings in the vaults and mm-hmm. no matter which way you put them together, it still just doesn't quite add up. So it's more about the it's more about the journey than the destination. That one, Dave. Absolutely. And you've <laughs> and as you said, you know, you've you've corrected a lot of the mistakes that you did in in, in the third the third version of yeah. of the larger ensemble. Where did um? So how did that the the Denmark large ensemble come about? Well, as with you know, as with opening that piece of junk mail, uh, <laughs> you know, these things just we've been incredibly fortunate that just things turn up out of the blue sometimes and in mm. this case it's our dear friend mads uh who we didn't know at the time just he was working in a music in a library in this town and they had a really big music library within the library and you know he had some money to do some projects i think he'd done one with um maria chavez is she the turntablist? Um, okay. I think I think it was Maria Chavez. I can't remember. Um, he had money to to he had some funding to do some projects, and he really liked our music. And he'd seen that we'd done these large ensembles. I'm not sure if he'd maybe been at a festival and seen one of them. I can't remember now. But anyway, he proposed to us that we do a large ensemble there in 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 the town in Ordenser, and we said. Yes, please. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it goes back to the the sort of the, the how Exeter Island is and how it operates. I think people, you know, the way the way that you set up on stage, the techniques that you're using, people can visualize um, that their imaginations are allowed to blossom a lot more when they're watching you perform that mm-hmm. I think it lends your project has lend itself to being open to collaboration much more naturally than say just a regular band, you know? Yeah, may, maybe so. I think, I think, um, because, you know, within the group, whether we're a three piece or a four piece or, or in these large ensembles, you know, the, it's like about the combination of the instruments rather than like each person having their their own instrument. I'm trying to think of a better way of putting it. Like you're kind of viewing the the, the massed instruments as as one one big instrument. Organism. Do you, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, mm. and it's it's less about like um, lead, you know lead guitar rhythm guitar i don't know that just feels like a poor comparison but there's a certain egolessness or something to the the way people get involved with the pieces it's like they want to serve the the music rather than like show showboat or whatever and because of the way we've prepared the instruments are offering them a really limited range of things they can do so they mm. they get really deep down into this these preparations and and these conditions we've kind of imposed on them through the you know the like Exeter like method 
or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I still really think that the large, the Salford large ensemble um, piece could have been improved by. I mean, I suggested at the time it was kind of ignored, but just a pinch harmonic part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just well, all ne- of us doing pinch harmonics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I think uh, next time, Dave. Next food for time. thought, mate. Yeah, yeah. Food for yeah. All right, that concludes part one of this episode. And if you're ready for more, part two is also available to stream right now. Thank you for listening. <laughs>